Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of my favorite stories of the week is this cheating scandal rocking the poker world. And it's playing out over YouTube and online forums as internet detectives try to figure out what's going on. Poker player Mike Possel is under investigation for cheating during live stream poker games and is being accused of making too perfect a call on hands. It's not the hands that he's winning. Rather, it's those that he's losing that are under scrutiny. For more on the story, we spoke to David Hill. He's a contributor to The Ringer. Mike Possel is a um, professional poker player that lives in Sacramento area in California and plays regularly at a place called Stone's Gambling Hall. And a couple of years back, the card room started up a live streamed game and the viewers were able to see the players whole cards. And there were live commentators who would commentate on the action who were watching everything on a 30 minute delay from the game. They used RFID readers in the chips and on the table to be able to see what the whole cards that the players had were. This is something that was popularized at the Bicycle Casino in Southern California. So Stones, I think, was just trying to get in on a little of that action. Their stream was not nearly as popular as the Live at the Back stream, but it's pretty popular now because after one of the players in the game accused Mike of cheating... And Joe Ingram, a popular podcaster, has sort of rallied around her allegations and has done his own investigation. Now there's thousands of people watching these streams and pouring over these videos to try to deduce what's happening. A lot of people have been talking to professional players or saying he has a win rate that some professional players don't have. He's making calls that professional players wouldn't make. So he's just kind of accused of being too perfect. What's interesting about it is that it's not the hands that he won that I think really burned him here. For me, anyway, it's hands that he lost that I think have really exposed what he's doing, right? Where he would have a very strong hand, but his opponent would have one that's just a little bit stronger. And he would just call a small bet or he would fold sometimes when any mere mortal would have put all their chips in and gone broke. Do we know exactly what he's doing for this cheating. I know a lot of people are saying that he keeps his cell phone in his lap and he's constantly looking at his phone. Some people are saying it has something to do with these RFID chips in the cards themselves. Do we know <laughs> what he's doing? It's a lot like looking into the JFK assassination or something where people watched the Zapruder film over and over or dug through all the evidence that was available. And if you go online and on Reddit or any of these forums, you'll see that there's all kinds of theories and speculation about what he's doing. One of the things that I think is pretty clear is that there's something in his lap that he looks at before he, every tough decision almost certainly his cell phone that's got some information on it about what's happening at the table. But I think that at this point, a lot of people feel very confident that he is cheating, but there's still a question of mark around exactly how. And that's why I think this still continues to be a work in progress and people still are flocking to it and falling down that wormhole of watching all the video and parsing all the data to try to figure out that part of the mystery. I was just looking at a couple of these YouTube videos just to kind of get a sense for this story that we were covering right now. And you do notice little tiny things, but you can't tell, or maybe you think, okay, he's totally <laughs> cheating there. You're just going back and forth. And it's interesting because this is not one of the biggest poker scandals that have happened even very recently. There's been some other cases where the house was coordinating with a player to cheat other players out of their money. And you just don't know what's happening here. Stone's gambling for their part has said that they stopped the live streams. They're investigating themselves. But you're right. You can't really pinpoint it exactly where it's happening. 
I think this is just the thing about the times that we're living in. I mean, it's true that this isn't even the largest cheating scandal that's hit the poker community in recent memory. And these kinds of small scale cheating operations going on at little casinos around the country happen from time to time and they don't make major news and there's not like whole subreddits dedicated to them. What makes this unique is that there's just so many hours and hours of footage for people to pour over. And I think that's why this particular scandal, even though it's relatively not as much money and hasn't had as big of an impact as some of these other kinds of cheating cases that have happened over the years, this one has really captured people's imagination and attention because you can pour over all these hours and hours of footage. And I think that there's also something about this moment we live in today where people on the internet are kind of obsessed with taking down scammers and hucksters and grifters. And I think that this is another example of that where people online have found a guy who thought he was smarter than everybody else and they're taking kind of glee and pleasure in taking him down. And I think there's a little bit of that going on too where people are readying the pitchforks. David Hill, author and contributor to The Ringer, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Amid more scrutiny in the wake of the college admissions cheating scandal, The ACT has announced that it will let students retake individual portions of the test that they wish to improve instead of having to retake the entire test. These new scores will be added to a super score for the student, and the ACT believes that these will be more reflective of how the student will actually do in college. For more on this story, we spoke to Tonnell Hobbs, education reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Well, you know, the ACT said it's been in the work for a couple of years, and they had noticed that there was almost 50% of test takers retesting. So they decided, well, why don't we make this easier for them where they don't have to sit through hours-long testing, and they could just focus on the area that they need to bring up their score in. So how are these scores going to be calculated now? Because obviously, if you would retake the test, that new score is your score again. So you could maybe do worse on a section you previously did pretty well on. So how is this new scoring going to be working? So when a student applies to college, if they require standardized test scores, the ACT or the SAT, the student still has to turn in all of the scores for that sitting. But they can also submit their retest scores. And what ACT is going to do, it's going to look at all of the individual scores and it will take the highest scores from each of those subject categories. And it would come up with what they call a super score. So it would be your best of to get you to that. Basically, they're just going to really aggregate to look at those top scores. And then they would submit that super score. And that scores what these colleges often look at is sometimes the colleges actually come up with their own super score where they're looking at the subjects just kind of taking the highest score from each one. And the SAT says that their research suggests that this is a more predictive way of of how the student will actually do in college. Is this because they'll be able to focus specifically on one subject rather than just a big comprehensive test? They said that that was part of the research they did, that it shows that this is more likely how these students will perform on their college courses. The ACT right now costs $52 without the optional writing section. With that included, it'll be $68. Have they mentioned at all how much the pricing would be just for uh, one of these individual subjects? 
No, but they did say that low-income students can take the test for free, and they can also take these retests for free. And I know there's been some concern out there with people feeling that this could cause some kind of equity issue because you have students who might have more money and might be able to take it repeatedly, right. first, second, third, fourth, fifth times. So ACT feels that this would kind of level that field because the low-income students could do their retests for free. Students can take the test up to 12 times Although they say most only take it once or twice. So theoretically, they could, as you mentioned, keep retaking a certain subject. Yeah, until, I didn't see a limit at all mentioned. Right. Interesting. Talk to us a little bit about the kind of rivalry between the ACT and the SAT. I grew up on the West Coast, so for me, I don't know, it was always SAT that I had heard about. But for a while, the ACT was kind of a leader in students taking those tests. Yeah, you know, they are longtime rivals. And actually, last year, the SAT, when it comes to test takers, they actually surged past the ACT for the first time in seven years because the ACT had had a lock on more graduates choose us. And then also last month, the ACT announced that they had another record that 2.2 million 2019 graduates took the exam, and that's up from 2.1 million. So now ACT, they plan to release their results next week. So everybody will be watching to see if they can overtake the um, SAT and test takers. Right. The other thing that was interesting is they're expanding the availability of online test taking also. Yes, they are. And they do some online test taking right now. But this plan would make the online test taking available during the national test dates. And they feel like that'll be a faster turnaround. So kids would love that. So they wouldn't have to wait for a couple of weeks to get the results back. And they also feel like that could address an issue with just these kids are in a digital age and they feel like students feel more comfortable doing tests online and digitally. So they think that it can help improve scores that way too. Tonnell Hobbs, education reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Finally for this week, we speak to a 2019 Nobel Prize winner. Earlier in the week, Dr. Greg Semenza and two others received the Nobel Prize for Medicine for their work into how cells sense and adapt to oxygen availability. Because of their discoveries, there's been advancements that led to anemia and cancer drugs. Dr. Semenza joins us to explain his work, how he reacted when he got the call notifying him he had won, and the high school teacher that inspired his love of science and discovery. We were studying the gene for a hormone called erythropoietin. You may know it as EPO. It's the hormone that controls red blood cell production. And of course, red blood cells carry oxygen to the tissue. And when oxygen availability decreases... There are cells in the kidney that sense the decrease in oxygen, which we call hypoxia, and they increase their production of EPO. And EPO is secreted into the bloodstream and goes to the bone marrow where the red blood cell progenitors are located and stimulates the red cell progenitors to divide. That increases the number of red cells, increases the delivery of oxygen. So it's a beautiful system that maintains oxygen delivery in a normal, healthy individual. And what we're interested in trying to understand is, well, exactly how do those cells sense oxygen and then increase the expression of the erythropoietin gene to make more EPO and to set into motion an increase in red blood cell production? And because of these discoveries that you made, there's new drugs on the horizon, things that could help with cancer, things that could help with anemia. How does that all work out? So I mentioned that the EPO is normally made in the kidney. Individuals with uh, chronic renal failure 
for example, are on dialysis because their kidneys don't work, they also stop making EPO. And as a result, they're anemic. And that used to require red blood cell transfusions that would put the patients at risk for disorders like uh, AIDS or hepatitis. Then when EPO was cloned, it was possible to make EPO in the laboratory, and then this protein could be injected into the patients, and then their bone marrow would make red blood cells without any transfusion. So that was a real advance. But it does require injection of this recombinant protein, which is expensive to make. And some individuals develop antibodies against the protein because it's not quite the natural protein that's made by the body. And some individuals have some cardiovascular side effects from taking EPO. So the system that we discovered started out with a transcription factor, which is a protein that turns genes on. And we call that protein hypoxia-inducible factor 1, or HIF1 because when cells are deprived of oxygen, they make lots of this protein, and it turns on the expression of hundreds of genes, one of which is EPO. And it turned out, and this was a discovery that were, was made by uh, Peter Radcliffe and Bill Kalin, who are the other um, Nobel laureates this year with me, they discovered the, the, the mechanism by which the levels of HIF-1 change according to the oxygen level. And it's really neat because what happens is there's an enzyme that actually inserts oxygen atoms into HIF-1. And when those oxygen atoms get inserted into HIF-1, the protein can now be um, broken down and destroyed. So as long as you have lots of oxygen, you destroy HIF-1 and you don't turn on all these genes like EPO. But if there's not enough oxygen, then that doesn't happen. And now the HIF-1 protein can accumulate to high levels and turn on lots of genes. Why that's important from the point of view of drug treatment is that, as I mentioned, there's an enzyme that puts these oxygen atoms into the HIF-1 protein. And that enzyme, its activity can be blocked by a drug. And so several companies have developed drugs that effectively can block that enzyme. So as far as the cells are concerned, it's as if there's hypoxia because HIF-1 is accumulating and more EPO can be made and that can increase red blood cell production. And the benefit of these new treatments is that they can be taken as a pill. When did the majority of your research and discovery take place? So we first discovered the part of the EPO gene that was important for the response to hypoxia. And then having that piece of DNA, we found the transcription factor HIF-1 that binds to it. Then we were able to actually isolate the DNA sequences that code for the HIF-1 protein. And it turns out there's two subunits that we call alpha and beta. So we worked out the sequences for those. And that was in 1995. And that was really important because that kind of gave us tools that we could use for molecular analyses to look at the involvement of this system in whatever disease process they study. So 1995, we identified the DNA sequences for HIF-1. By 2000, 2000, 2001, Bill and Peter had identified the the fact that these oxygen atoms are inserted into the HIF-1-alpha protein by these enzymes that are called prolyl hydroxylases. So those were the really kind of key discoveries. And then, as I said, as soon as those enzymes were discovered, it was immediately apparent how they might be blocked by small molecule drugs. And so drug development started really right away at that time. And then went through the usual progression of showing that you can turn on the epogene in cells, then showing it you can turn it on in animals, then showing that the drugs are safe in patients and that they increase EPO levels. And then finally, these very, very large trials to show 
that the drugs are effective. The acknowledgement of winning the Nobel Prize is something that few people really experience. Tell us a little bit how you feel about that. And then also, please talk about your high school teacher, which I've seen in a number of stories about you, how Dr. Rose Nelson really gave you this kind of zest for science and discovery. I guess I could start with the phone call that came at 3.43 a.m. on Monday morning. So the phone was ringing out in the hall, and I was in a very deep sleep. My wife was in a very deep sleep, and I eventually woke up, made my way to the phone, but by the time I got there, the phone had stopped ringing. So I said, hmm. Do you, know, course, do you know that? Of course, I knew what day it was. Okay, that, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. You know your... Yeah, I knew what day it was. <laughs> but, I, you know, I said, oh, I wonder if this is somebody's idea of a bad joke. And uh, so I went back to bed, and it was actually quite some time. I thought it might have been five or ten minutes. My wife thought it may have been half an hour. And then the phone rang again. And I was a little quicker to the phone this time. And Thomas Perlman from the Nobel Committee told me I had won the prize. And it was funny because, you know, I was half awake, and then he's telling me this incredible news. And I was just so dazed <laughs> that I was mute. Right. <laughs> and I, the conversation was very one-sided. He apologized for waking me up. I said, oh, that's quite all right. But, yeah, with uh, news I'm like sure that, it's, it's quite all right, I guess, for sure. <laughs> So I don't know, but they, they're afraid that I won't be able to give a lecture based on my uh, telephone conversation <laughs> skills. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was, uh, yeah, it was, quite, awesome. a, it was quite a surprise. There's nothing that quite prepares you for it. And your high school teacher, Rose Nelson, because this is an important part. Right, you know, she had predicted it. Yeah. She had predicted that moment 45 years ago. Oh, wow. Um, that's great. Not me personally. So first of all, you know, she was very unusual for a high school teacher because she had a Ph.D., and had actually been trained in research. She had done a postdoc in a lab, uh, a very famous lab called Woods Hole on uh, Cape Cod. So she didn't just teach us the facts of biology. She told us who made the discoveries, how they made the discoveries, how exciting those discoveries were, how they changed biology, and just gave us this sense of wonder about biology and the living world. And then she would say to us things like, and I want you to remember when you win your Nobel Prize <laughs> that you learned this here in our class. And she would say these kinds of things frequently. And she was just a giant. She was less than five feet tall, always had a beatific smile on her face. She had a jar of jelly beans on her desk in the front of the room. And if someone gave a particularly eloquent answer to one of her questions, she would beckon them to come up to the room uh, and dispense several of these jelly beans as a reward. So it just had an indelible impact on me yeah. and really set my career in motion. And uh, that's great. Yeah, you know, it's my great regret that she passed away and wasn't able to enjoy this with me. But, you know, I've gotten an incredible amount of feedback from folks in my high school who I haven't heard from in 40 years, just echoing my thoughts and saying that that's the way I felt too. Well, Dr. Semenza, congratulations and thank you for all your research, all the work that you and, and your colleagues have all done. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people will benefit from it in the very near future. Dr. Greg Semenza, professor of genetic medicine at Johns Hopkins University and 2019 Nobel laureate. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. I enjoyed the conversation with you. Take care. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.